0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Fest, Stephen's Universe edition. It's Wednesday, February 15th, 2017. On today's show, Stephen Universe has gone from being a semi-hidden curio on the Cartoon Network to as some critics argued the best show on television, we discussed this animated gem. And then Saturday Night Live, it's suffered a fate that is usually death to satire. It's become venerable, but the institution has found new life and Mondo ratings, making fun of, yeah, that guy. And finally, Slate's series, The Trump Story Project, publishes pieces of fiction, but are now in danger of being uncanny depictions of the alternate reality that we are all now living Joining me today is Slate's editor Julia Turner. Hey, Julia.
1: Hello, from Slate's Washington D.C. office today.
0: I was going to ask. Yeah, no, I'm reporting live from the um, Gent um, Slate's Gent studio. Yeah, and and of course, uh, Slate's uh, film critic Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. We're all in three separate locations right now.
2: I know it's sort of fitting for Steven Universe, as we'll talk about when we get to it. I feel like we should all fuse into one mega being.
0: Or alternately with like the sort of Armageddon Damocles hovering over the human race, I think it's important that all that one member of the Gabfest crew survive no matter what. So I think doing it from disparate secret locations
1: may be the way to go.
2: Yeah, concrete bunker. Shoot, Safe we room. just told mm.
1: everybody our locations. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you guys We
2: have worse security than the Trump administration.
3: Oh,
0: that's true too. Uh Julia, before we dig in, what uh What sorts of businesses do we have?
1: First, I want to remind our listeners that we have a live show coming up in Washington, D.C. on April 19th. And tickets for that, I think, will soon be available over this weekend. First for Slate Plus members and then for Slate regular readers and listeners at slate.com slash live. Uh, And then second, our Slate Plus segment today will be sort of a Quiz Steve segment. We got a listener question on the Facebook page to the effect of, where do I start with philosophy? Um, and so we're going to pose that question to Steve. Dana, perhaps I will pose it to you as well. I certainly will not be answering the question where do I start <laughs> with philosophy? Of life. Yay or nay? Having never particularly started (laughs) unless you count political theory, which we can get into. So if you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can join at slate.com slash culture plus. Joining will give you access to ad free Slate podcast feeds, bonus segments of our show and other shows every week. And of course, uh, make you a supporter of Slate and the journalism that we do. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right. What are we talking about?
0: Steven Universe is an animated show. It's on the Cartoon Network. It comes from the um, rather remarkable imagination of an animator named Rebecca Sugar. Embarrassed to say, I didn't know who she was. She's the first female showrunner creator on the Cartoon Net- Network, and second, fanboys and fangirls of Adventure Time will recognize her name as a, as a. a Creative contributor to that show. This one tells the tale of a sweet, if somewhat inept, kid and his alien warrior friends who are crystal gems. We'll explain that in a minute. He himself is a son of this semi mythical creature, a crystal gem, crossed with a human, and he's learning to use his own powers of shape shifting, form melding, and gender fluidity. Uh, The show itself is a fascinating cross of anime, video games, and Saturday morning cartoons. Um, And in the end, it's as much about identity and empathy as anything else. It's even called a defining example of artistic resistance in the age of Trump. Why don't we listen to a clip?
2: These are the warps that once connected us to other planets. If something tried to come from space, it would be through here. But wait, this warp pad is broken, marked inactive by the very depressed cartoon
0: breakfast sticker you placed here yourself. Look, Pearl's right,
3: like usual. Ugh, you get used to it. (sighs) Oh man, finally, that took all day!
0: It was important to make Steven feel secure.
2: Yes, Steven feels much better now.
1: I'm a little tired of you guys telling me how I feel! I know I saw something outside the stream! And I know you didn't. Why is you it so don't hard tell to me just what listen I to Steven.
3: You,
2: this is new. I kind one. of I'm like it. Steven, you just don't know what you're talking
1: about. Like you know what talking about. It sounds like maybe you don't know what I'm talking about.
0: Dana, let me let me start with you. I I, I would describe this show as disorienting but in the very best uh, possible way. I mean, it's a uh, been described as an all ages show it certainly is that you can imagine kids watching it almost like a saturday morning cartoon you can imagine cynical hipster dweebs watching it at four in the morning and even middle-aged um dorks like me getting into it which i did um i all i knew after i'd watched four or five episodes is i wanted to continue to be lost within its weirdness but also eventually to orient myself to it what appears to be quite broad and deep mythologies uh what do you make of this show
2: well, you know, I didn't expect to like this show at all for the following reasons. I, As I've said, I think many times talking about TV series on, on this podcast, I'm not that into deep mythology shows, you know, shows that have all kinds of strange mysteries that need to be unfurled by watching it all in order, kind of X-Files style. That's just not a style of watching that appeals to me. And secondly, I was afraid, I guess, because, like you say, this is popular among both sort of stoner dude types and and kids and all kinds of people. I thought it would be like one of those adult swim shows, which in general don't appeal to me, precisely because they tend to come from a sort of patriarchal point of view that's kind of mean and sexist. And I don't even specifically, I can't even cite a show for you, but I think you know the spirit I mean, the kind Mm -hmm, of stoner dude show. and. This show was, yes, the deep mythology is there, and you need to have some patience to unpack it, and I haven't totally done that yet with the six or so episodes I've watched, Uh, but it is the opposite of one of those nasty dude stoner shows from, from Adult Swim. It's really this beautiful kind of uh, dreamy lesbian fantasy about, about, as you said, gender fluidity and the ability to, to change your identity into whatever you want. And, you know, the logic of the show proceeds in this d- strange dreamlike way that you really have to give yourself up to. It's not something you can watch out of the corner of one eye while you're checking your email or something, right? I mean, it's really a show that, in spite of the fact that it's 10 minutes long, and as you say, a, a child could understand it and engage with it on many levels— there's a there's a lot of complexity there and it it takes really unexpected plot twists.
1: Yeah, also it's just beautiful. And I say that as someone who uh really admires you know the magical realist beauty of whimsical uh illustrated landscapes like the ones you might find in a Miyazaki movie and I think the that that influence is certainly here. Um but it combines these beautiful landscapes which have a combination of dream-like block cut landscapes and then um, kind of very goofy and specific personas and and places uh, with a really unusual narrative structure that combines totally progressive politics uh, but that are shrugged at rather than made a big deal out of and that's so much more pleasurable from a narrative perspective. Like the model here is not Pixar's Brave where the company is like, oh shoot, we've never had a female protagonist. Let's make a movie with a female protagonist, and then the plot for that female protagonist is like, oh shit, I'm the protagonist, but I'm a woman. What a problem! Like, you know, every everyone <laughs> is just modern in their identities and um, and admirable in their empathy for one another, and then that does not uh, deny. The the story, its conflict and interest, and all kinds of unusual alien beasties and emotional beasties that the uh, characters have to deal with. So I was very impressed. I really enjoyed uh, the episodes of the show that I watched.
0: Me too. I loved it. Um, I watched it with my now um, just turned fourteen year old daughter, um, who regards herself as uh, a kind of preference indeterminate and, and fluid, and um, and many of her friends do too. And they don't they don't see that reflected very often in popular media, and as you say, Julie, exactly right, they very often don't see it reflected back to them Um, non-didactically. Creators of shows don't approach that attitude towards life as naturally as uh, they do apparently now, as young people, uh, and some very young people do now. It reminded me, um, as you say, of anime uh, in that you enter its logic um, and are disoriented by what by your standards is illogic, but by its standards has a kind of Dreamlike coherence to it. Um, I loved that aspect. It reminded me also of an uh, uh, in influence. Sugar, as far as I know, hasn't really cited, but I'll impose on her and it, which is Henry Darger, the um, outsider artist who created vast warring universes uh, out of uh, um, out of his imagination. Um, another thing I really want to mention about it is that one of the kind of um, tutelary gems is voiced by Estelle, who one could listen to reading or saying anything at any length uh um it's very she has a very captivating uh english accent really rich-tampered, authoritative voice. I love her character. And then the other thing I would say is that the way music is um, woven into the storytelling.
2: Yeah, Stephen, as long as you mentioned the music, I agree. That's really, really a strong point of the show. And, and the songs, although they're very short and very simple, are all really catchy and, and really clever. And the first song that I heard that kind of made me start to get into the spirit of Stephen Universe was called Giant Woman. It's from the episode Giant Woman from the first season. Just for some background on this song, which also gives you a sense of this matrilineal kind of foundational queer universe that this show takes place in, the, the premise of the Giant Woman episode is that two of the the gem characters, who are Steven Universe's kind of guardians, named Amethyst and Pearl, have the ability to, to fuse when they want to, when they need to, for some moment of, of great strength, into one giant woman named Opal, who as it turns out, is voiced by Amy Mann. And so for the whole episode, Steven Universe is trying to get these two women to fuse and saying, I want to see you become a giant woman. It would be so cool. So let's, let's listen to a clip of this great song, Giant Woman.
3: Oh, I know it'll be great And I just can't wait To see the person you are Together if you give it a chance You could do a huge dance Because you are a giant woman You might even like
1: I think we should invite our intern, Daniel Schrader, onto the show, though, because he is a Steven Universe completist and pushed for us to do this segment. Um, And I have a question for him. Daniel, welcome to the studio.
3: Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you all are talking about this. It's such a great show.
1: I'm so glad that you prompted us to watch this. And I really enjoyed it. And I felt like I clicked with it more than I clicked with a show the last time we attempted to commune with a wildly popular cartoon network, cartoon that's really for adults. I'm referring there to Adventure Time, which I think we watched and admired uh, and then forgot about. And I'm a little concerned, even though I admired this more and it spoke more deeply to my heart as a feminist and admirer of beautiful landscapes and admirer of clever musicals and funny things, um, and frankly, gemstones. Uh, I'm like a little worried I'm not going to watch it. Like I really admire and like it, but I I'm like not sure it's going to rise to the top of my my TiVo. And I'm curious how you discovered it and how uh, it fits into your viewing habits and like whether you have thoughts on the adult cartoon and how to cultivate your adult cartoon watching self.
3: Like the reason it fits in my viewing schedule because like I just love animation i I really like a lot of anime I watch um adventure time well I watched adventure time for a long time though I staled on that after a while um and I think that part of like why I transferred over to this as like my main cartoon that I go to and look for is because it has all of the pieces of Adventure Time but also goes further than that. There's an emotional depth to Steven Universe that isn't available in something like Adventure Time, I think. Rebecca Sugar just understands how to check all of the boxes of a great uh, adventure story that has all of the mythology but also how to um, tell a well-crafted emotional narrative. And um, that's actually exemplified most in um, one arc between uh, Pearl and um, Garnet fusing and Pearl and Garnet fuse once and then pearl tries to trick garnet into fusing a couple more times because it is so emotionally fulfilling to be fused and by
2: fuse you mean they turn into one other being yes they fuse
3: into another being and their being is called sardonyx and um actually (laughs) what's interesting is so garnet herself is a fusion she lives every day as a fusion of ruby and sapphire and there's another episode that has that backstory as well that is also i watched it recently and it just brought me to tears for no reason It was just so good they fuse and then garnet is horrified when she finds out that uh Pearl has been tricking her so much because it's this deeply important thing to Garnet, who lives her life as a fusion, to feel like she is being taken advantage of. But at the same time, from Pearl's perspective, she is so desperate for some type of intimate connection like uh, Garnet's fusion experiences every day that she doesn't know how else to try and obtained that feeling. And it's just very adult feelings from a child show that make me fall in love.
1: Is this a child show? Like, I I, I guess I guess I'm having kind of a classification problem in response. And, and uh, this show is sort of anti classification. So I'll try and cast aside my desire to classify it. But I found myself watching this show and wishing that my children were the age of your children, uh, Dana and Steve, because I felt like someone who was like between eight and 15 could get obsessed and then it could be really fun to watch with them. Like who does the cartoon network conceive of as the audience for the show? Is it for nine year olds or 14 year olds or 40 year olds or every, like, is it really for everybody? I'm, I'm, i I'm confused.
3: I think where it fits in, in the block of uh, what it's programmed with. So it's programmed along with like adventure time and uh, the amazing world of gumball and um, regular show, which I believe is ending or has ended. Um, and so it's pitched at both those eight to fourteen year olds both ages, but also to my age of like twenty seven year old dude who just really likes animation and um I think that it it fits in all of those ranges because for someone like me who i I personally love all of the emotional deep stuff, but then like when I talk to it with my buddies who watch it, they really love the deep, complex mythology of it all and then when I talk to like my younger cousins who watch it, they really love the just pure fun of it all. So I think it just hits different receptors for different people, but has all of those things available to any viewer.
2: Well, even though Steven Universe is is drawn as a child, he seems to be about eight to 10 or something like that. It seems to me like more of a tween show. When I think of my 10-year-old daughter watching it, actually, she turns 11 today. Happy birthday.
3: Happy birthday.
2: (laughs) Um, I'm not sure that she would get some of the things that have to do with, for example, um, gender identity and falling in love. There's a great moment in one episode where S- Stephen and his child friend Connie fuse into a being called Stivani, and, uh, and they go to this dance together. And the crazy thing about Stivani is she's she's older than them, right? They fuse into this being. They're both maybe eight to ten years old. And this being seems to be a teenager. The teenager goes to a party and gets kind of hit on. And there's this scene of sort of uncomfortable quasi-sexual harassment. And then this moment where she stands up for themselves. And uh, and it's something that I think for for somebody who's just at the age to start flirting or being harassed or being noticed as a sexual being would be a would be a great empowering episode. You know, Steve, I thought of you because the, the, the cartoon show, the much more mainstream cartoon show that I thought of upon first watching this was My Little Pony, which actually has I mean, I'm talking to the current My Little Pony, not the old one that was very sweet and saccharine, but the one that is currently on that has this developing deep mythology. My Little
3: Pony Friendship is Magic. Uh, Friendship is Magic,
2: exactly. And in which there are also sort of shrugged off absurdities, like, for example, this dragon character named Spike who burps scrolls. (laughs) So whenever he belches, you know that some kind of message is coming from Celestia, the queen pony, and it comes out of his mouth and they all read it. So burping scrolls (laughs) is the kind of thing that would happen in Steven Universe. Anyway, Steve, since I know you're a brony, I thought I'd just share that.
0: I can neither confirm nor deny any knowledge of what Dana speaks of.
2: Steve, you've already said on stage at a live show that Twilight Sparkle is your favorite Dana. pony. Or was
0: Silence it or my pie? Please Pie? <laughs> Silence the crazy woman's microphone. <laughs> uh, Daniel, thank you so much for coming into the studio. That was fantastic.
3: Thanks for having me. This was a ton of fun.
0: Uh, the show Steven Universe. It's on the Cartoon Network, 10 minute bites at a time. If you're not familiar with it, you should be. Uh, We'd love to know what you think of it. There are definitely going to be some um, completists out there uh, in our audience. So come to facebook.com slash Tell us what you thought. All right, moving on. Saturday Night Live has gone from a counterculture middle finger to an American institution over its Decades of existence. And like any such institution, it waxes and wanes in relevance and freshness. But the Trump presidency has given it new creative life and historically high ratings. Alec Baldwin, of course, is thin skinned shallow, egomaniacal fool president. Melissa McCarthy is spicy. Kate McKinnon is everybody and any, uh, everybody and anybody in between the show now dominates late night satire as John Stewart once did during the Bush years. Um, we're joined to discuss uh, the role of satire in the age of Donald Trump with uh, the wonderful Emily Bazelon, of course one of the um, magnificent threesome of the Political Gab Fest and a contributor to the New York Times Magazine. Emily, welcome to the show.
4: Hey, thanks for having me. You guys always give the most e- ebullient uh, introductions to your guests. It's it's very nice. It's like you're starting on a high note. Of course, I may not <laughs> ever match that high note in in what I actually say, but but you've, you've set the terms.
0: Are you accusing me of insincerity? No, because you
4: have a lot to live up. <laughs> um, um,
0: right, well, I, there's no doubt you'll be able to do that, um, he said, with with unctuous and sincerity. Um, Emily, <laughs> um, added to all of what is strange and pomo and funhouse and bizarre about what we're experiencing right now is that uh, you know as you watch Saturday Night Live, you are confident that the mad King is also watching and will tweet about it practically in real time or if not, um, certainly by the next day. What on earth are we co- what are we supposed to make of uh, the relationship between satire and reality in the age of this uh, preposterous uh, presidency?
4: Right well as i think um this is actually a line from SNL last week that Trump is the TV president. At the time i think he was at In TV Court in a skit on the show but i think you're right that there's a way in which this particular kind of TV seems like it matters more than a lot of um reality matters and that it's a barometer <laughs> right like and that it's a barometer for um For Trump or for thinking about the presidency, a lens for for seeing the presidency and the fact that you know that Trump actually cares about it and seems to be thin-skinned about the show's portrayal of him is also part of the kind of intrigue.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of why we were so eager to have you on is because we listened to your conversation about SNL and Trump last week and uh, your esteemed colleague David Plotz was... Lamentatious, dismissive, concerned about the gleefulness of the satire on SNL, about the gleefulness of the satire on SNL, and I think you know express the concern that the making other liberals chortle at the craven stupidity of Trump and those around him uh, might not actually be the most politically useful thing to do, and also might in fact even be counterproductive. Um, And I'm, and I think Dana at least expressed to me, am I outing you, Dana, that that she was like shouting at her headphones from her kitchen table. Um, Oh, well, I just thought,
2: well, my contribution to the conversation would have been, after after Plot said that about, you know, is this really what the left wants to do is, is, you know, make fun of Trump. And I think his idea was also, you know, how are we going to create a coalition? Basically, how are we going to peel off Trump supporters who are slowly realizing, you know, the error of their ways if we keep on making fun of him and, by extension, anyone who would vote for him? I mean, wasn't that sort of part of the gist of David's argument?
4: Yeah. I mean, I think David was skipping over the usual defensive satire, which which I'm sure, like, which you should give. But I think he was making a larger point about liberal control of pop culture of mainstream culture right now and the way in which that can make the mockery feel alienating in, in his eyes to Trump supporters there's a way in which like there's a monopoly on um the culture's distaste for Trump and um and it's not I, I think David's point was like well there are all those people out there who see it differently and the people who are making television etc aren't necessarily the best position to reach them because they seem to just be kind of like wanting to take a shower rather than consider right. that point of view
2: right. I see his point. I mean, I guess his point was in a way that insofar as Hollywood is, you know, controlled by liberals for the most part and and that's the position that we're assumed to be speaking from when we watch a TV show or go to a Hollywood movie that it's sort of punching down in a way in a kind of aesthetic way. it's it's a, it's, a, it's a punching down to um to to the right. I mean, I I guess my only response to that, and this may not be the classic defensive satire, but it's a it's a release of tension. You know, it just seemed to me the idea that satirists, that the creators of Saturday Night Live would have to dial things back or try to reach out or kind of, you know, sort of in some way control their um, their approach to, to satirizing Trump. Because force on political goal seemed to me to just glide over the function of satire as a pure release of, of energy, you know, and just that that we're living under such a strange regime right now. And there's such a sense of, of powerlessness and we can call our congressman every day and sign every petition and nobody cares. And, no, you know, it, nothing's going to change. And that there's this there's this place of kind of libidinal bursting out and that's what Saturday Night Live represents right now. I mean the strange thing to me about this this new resurgence of Saturday Night Live and then under the Trump regime is that it's not even necessarily funny every week. I think it was kind of largely agreed, for example, that last week's episode was kind of a disappointment. But it still feels important, you know, and even some of the skits that are unfunny, for example, the Fatal Attraction skit that was pretty, at least on my Twitter feed, widely derided for being sexist, the Kellyanne Conway as Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, right? It wasn't that it was funny that mattered. It was that it released a certain kind of... Um, pent up rage as the Sean Spicer, which to me are the most successful Melissa McCarthy, Melissa McCarthy is Sean Spicer skits. They they allow us to kind of scream back at someone that we feel like is, is screaming at us without us having any voice in it.
1: I do think the fact that we know Trump is watching does confound how we think about it, though, in really interesting ways. Someone smart in a slate meeting a couple weeks ago Suggested that Trump needed a fool that, like he should, he should have a jester at the <laughs> at the White House to form to perform the classic function of like, you know, flatteringly but comedically presenting his foibles back at him in a way that perhaps he might comprehend. And I, I don't think SNL has quite taken on that role, but it must be such a head trip to be concocting comedy for an audience of the person whose uh, staff and and persona and policies you are um satirizing like that that does confound what they're doing. And I would raise perhaps a um, oh, I don't I don't know if this is a the going theory. I do not think this is the politically politically most astute version of Saturday Night Live that we have ever had. And I think it's too bad. Like, I think some of the performers on Saturday Night Live now are some of the best that um, have ever been on the show. And I think that the increasing diversity of the cast is a huge asset to the show and allows it to cover territory and do really fascinating, interesting, funny, provocative things that it never would have been able to do before and things that feel particularly vital at this moment. Um, but just the acuity of its political touch is a little broad. Like the Kellyanne Conway sketch, I think, is... is. Um, is a case in point like Kate McKinnon is doing heroic work portraying this vital mysterious figure in the Trump organization but every she's a different Kellyanne Conway in every sketch I mean maybe that's the conceit of the send-up is like you know she's so impossible to figure out SNL can't even decide if she's a apologetic harried suburban mom or a sex-crazed psychopath bitch fiend or um just a fame whore like it 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 you know they they can't settle on an interpretation, and maybe that's just a metaphor for how bewildered we all are by this person. But uh, I f- I'm, I feel like in some ways the insights aren't quite up to the level of scrutiny that the show is getting from everybody.
4: Huh. So I mean I guess the obvious test of satire is whether it's funny or not, right? And we shouldn't like to- completely skip past that. Um, I'm going to defend McKinnon's Kelly Conway, including this week. I mean. I don't really care if it's consistent or not. I just want want it to make me think about what's happening in some way, even if I think it's like off base. um, I think there's something about her different characterizations at different moments. Um, I I think maybe the most successful ones are when she just has like one second to roll her eyes when she's portraying Conway in the office with Trump. Um, and I, I think the glory of Melissa McCarthy's uh, send up of Sean Spicer is that it makes it clear that Spicer is playing the fool in a lot of ways in the White House, that Trump already has that character. Um, so anyway, I, I guess my job wasn't really to defend the show um, on this show. But I do think that, um, you know, no, no, con- it's so hard. I mean, they are performing at such a high level. What we want from them. Is you know amazingly classic comedy that's to the standard of when John Belushi and Eddie Murphy were doing their amazing SNL. There's always that like high high bar for them, and of course they're not going to meet it every week. But are they providing the release that Dana was talking about to their audience? I think they probably are. And then there's this other question which you can either bat away as irrelevant or um, grapple with, which is is reaching their audience in that rage-filled release way something that has political utility right now and maybe that's not a fair test for the show.
2: Yeah, I I don't think political utility is the, the 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 grounds on which you should judge a comedy show. I wish plots were here to make the case that it were.
0: Well, I I'll make a version of the case and maybe I'm not uh, characterizing him fairly, but um because I used to believe it about the Daily Show that that Um, And I thought that that was really driven home when Colbert and Stewart did the rally in Washington, D.C., which fell completely flat, in part because at the moment that you might have done something kind of galvanic and identity making about the people who'd been laughing along with them for the better part of 10 years, um, they couldn't muster it That, 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 you know, in a way it did seem to be. A coping mechanism and an aspirin in the age of you know political absurdity and 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 uh, you know uh, ill-begotten wars, um, and and that to me was quite depressing. I think actually something totally dissimilar is going on right now with Saturday Night Live because Trump is so completely anomalous himself, and the old idea was that you know coastal elites. Um, laugh at and laugh down at and talk down to and behind the backs of ordinary people. And this was a caricature that really helped neuter the left in a way by using a kind of social characterization of the typical, you know, latte-sipping snob um, as the left-winger. And I think that the energy there has reversed completely, that, that if you can't see the manifest absurdity and, and frankly, kind of anti Americanism uh, of this administration, you don't really deserve to have an opinion about who or what I am. And I think that this is that, that what SNL is doing right now is far more continuous with the women's marches um, the day after the inauguration, which suddenly made people aware that we're done fucking saying we're sorry. We're done apologizing for the foamed milk in our coffee as if that's the relevant you know, issue here. And um I think SNL is is reinforcing that in a obviously a much more jagged and and, and satirical and you know cutting way, jaggedly cutting way, but, but kind of the same effect. It's if you can't look at our public life right now and see that these people are clowns, hypocrites, lying travesting the constitution and seem to have an end game of repealing liberal democracy i don't really give a shit if you don't like my choice of white wines. like <laughs> screw you
2: that's the release i'm talking about exactly the release that i'm talking about it's a psychological function more than a political one you right
0: but i think that that psychological function has a political has a political consequence absolutely which is you know, which is very binding and very animating. And it's continuous with a desire to fight, not a desire to be superior and laugh and then switch it off and go back to, you know, a uh, uh, status quo ante.
4: But, Steve, what you just said is about feeling superior. I mean, the like working oneself up into the lather of like, if they can't see, well, fuck them, which is like, I, I, it's just, there are a lot of no, people who I... don't. See Trump that way, and and if you, I yeah. think, if you yeah, and fuck them. Maybe this is
0: is satire. <laughs> yeah, I'm not negotiating a common reality with someone who can look at Donald Trump and not see. Uh, you know uh, who can hear the words President Trump and not experience an oxymoron? Who can look at the Flynn situation and say that the problem is the media leaked this? I mean, I'm done negotiating that common reality. I don't care if I'm above or below the person I'm not negotiating with anymore. In my estimation, that person is an enemy of the American Republic. I am no longer in dialogue with them. And by the way, I would feel less secure saying this, Emily, if the Gallup polls didn't demonstrate a basically a fifteen point. Uh, advantage to my side as well he is leaking the people who voted for him and certainly by this point has probably leaked a large plurality if not a majority of the people who voted for him and obama and uh, you know so i mean and it's going to
4: be a I, long I, slog it, until 2018 we i know this presidency seems endless but we are only we're less than a month in and it's we I know. The, the if you want to change the political landscape in the country which i know you do the idea that like enough folks are going to come over because they see how, you know, incredibly amazingly ludicrous this presidency is and that's going to turn the tables. I mean, you could be right, but it also seems to me that it is a real failure of empathy to write off every single Trump supporter right now. I mean, this was such a polarizing election, right? And people felt that they were making a choice that mattered to them. And so it's going to take a while. And and for a lot of people, it's going to be about circumstances of their own lives, how they feel about the well-being of the country and the economy. It's not going to be Michael Flynn as much as you might want it to be. And so I just feel like there is a sense of derision toward Trump supporters as well as toward Trump, which is not going to serve the American polity well in
0: the end. I, but, but I do think it's important to acknowledge we've crossed several shocking Rubicons. And one way to normalize that is to say, this is a Republican Democrat or left-right divide in some traditional way, spectrum way. And it's not. We're off of that spectrum. We're now talking about you know, people who have a fundamental understanding of empirical reality and the constitution. And if you're on the wrong side of that divide, I don't, I don't owe you a kind of good German condescending. Oh, that's fine. That's just your point of view. um. And I just want to be totally clear that I prefer Sancerre to Chardonnay.
4: <laughs> Steve, is there any room between, you know, I don't owe you like the condescending, I respect your point of view, and I'm still interested in trying to understand where you come from and think about how i might get you to think about this a little differently
0: i would do, i would uh, the problem with that emily is that in order for me to have that conversation in the first place a person has to be has to have a sufficiently liberal in the most expansive definition of the term attitude towards dialogue and reality right that 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 in essence i haven't already been I mean, I mean, just think about the categories into which a "quote unquote" liberal in the narrow, narrower sense is placed before they even open their mouth, right? In in that kind of a dialogue. Yes, if I could, if I could actually have that conversation with someone whose whose point of view wasn't so rigidified and and preformed prior to the discussion, that I, I might think there might be movement. But I, I, I mean, liberals. The entire worldview is based on the idea that they bring that suppleness to dialogues with others, and we've been screwed by that presumption over and over and over again, and one feature of self-respect is saying "Is enough is enough.
4: In the interviews I've done with Trump supporters since the election and just in talking to people, I think there's more play in the joints there than you're giving people credit for. That their are reasons, there, this notion that they're all rigidified or that they're all one thing, I just think is wrong from my conversations with people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that we need to make some room for finding each other across what feels like this enormous political divide.
0: Yes, I totally, I actually completely agree with that.
2: I, I agree, Emily, that there ha- there is going to have to be at some point a, a way, some common language that we find, right, from these two signs of the divide. Maybe not maybe not that we're going to peel people away even, but that at least we can have the fight on some grounds that we, we all agree on the terms. But mm-hmm. I don't think that the way to do that in any way, I think you would probably all agree on this, is to muzzle our satire. I mean, I don't think the way to do that is to, as Sean Spicer said, they've crossed over into mean, right, when Melissa McCarthy started playing him on the show. I, I don't think that listening to that, kind of voice and, and essentially neutering satire in order to make it less offensive to those it's satirizing is is the way that any of that dialogue gets started
0: uh emily Bazelon, it is it is really this is no there's no unction or insincerity here it is a uh a total pleasure to have you on the show i hope we do it again soon
4: all right thanks guys
0: Since the election, we've all read a hundred think pieces about what the next four years might hold, but fiction has a special power to clarify, galvanize, prophesy, and warn. So writes uh, Ben H. Winters, the acclaimed novelist, most recently of uh, the Times bestseller Underground Airlines, on Slate Magazine for the Trump Story Project. Ben now joins us. Ben. Ben. Uh, this I assume this I this was originally uh, a fully a counterfactual exercise in the anticipation that Hillary Clinton was going to win. You were going to publish a series of short stories. What if Trump had won? They were meant to be fanciful. Now they're turning into a kind of reality. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the inception of the project and how it's uh, how it's been executed?
5: Well, actually, to the contrary, I um, this idea really appeared uh, after the election. Um, oh really, shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like immediately, along with a lot of people, I think I felt a kind of despair and shock, you know, in the immediate aftermath. but but along with that, this very familiar feeling of like it, it was so surreal. you know, you it felt like we had entered this alternate reality. It really did. Um, and and it it was familiar to me because I've read a lot of books like that, and I've also had recently written one. and it occurred to me that um, one way of kind of thinking about what was about to happen? You know, this was in December, you know, this is before the inauguration. Uh, a, a, one way of thinking about what was about to happen, what was going on, um, one way of kind of processing the, the shock and, and also, I guess, thinking through what needed to be done now was was in fiction was in this kind of very specific genre of speculative fiction.
0: Why don't you describe um, how you chose the writers, who they are, and what the um, range of selections uh, is?
5: I, it was really important to me to find a reach of artists um, who bo- representing both sort of a, a, a diversity of the kinds of authors who are out there uh, in terms of genre. So I wanted to find some science fiction folks, some fantasy folks, some of what we just call straight literary fiction folks. Um, so, I, you know, I, and I, one of the nice things about being a writer is that you, you get to know a lot of writers and also... Um, you, you have this weird license, you just email other writers and say, introduce yourself and explain what you're doing. And, and I found that as, um, you know, as I think had struck me that this, um, this shocking election result uh, felt like a kind of um, a, a point of, besides being a point of despair, also kind of a point of inspiration. I think a lot of writers were also feeling like, oh God, what, how can I approach this? What can I write? Um, what will uh, be both kind of exciting to me as an artist and also feel like I am doing something, you know, in that sense, we all had, and I'll still have that is motivating a lot of political action, a lot of calling of Congress people, a lot of marching, um, a sense of, I need to be doing something right now. Um, and writers want to write. Um, so I, I did, you know, and I found folks like, uh, Nisi Shaw, who is a wonderful, um, speculative fiction author, who had a book called Everfair last year. Um, a big sort of sprawling, uh, super smart work of speculative fiction set in Africa. Um, and Hector Tobar, who lives here in LA, who, um, He he wrote a wonderful nonfiction book about the Chilean miners, but he's also an an extraordinary novelist. Um, And Saladin Ahmed, who is a science fiction writer and a poet, and Elizabeth Baer, and Eden Lepecki, whose book California um, garnered a lot of praise a couple years ago. So just, I really wanted to find a lot of um, different uh, kinds of minds, you know, to see what, how different people would take on this particular moment in time. I, I pitched it out as, look, I want to think about all the different ways that our country and our world might change in the next four years, um, and not just as a matter of politics, but also as a matter of like emotional tone, you know. Because that's what is so interesting about novels like this and stories like this is they allow you to try to feel what the world will feel like, not just what it would look like, but it will feel like um, had things been different.
2: I think you just answered my question. I mean, I was going to sort of ask what prompt you gave them, you know, how <laughs> how 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 much of a how extensive your suggestions were to them, or if you just sort of said, you know. Trump administration go. It, it,
5: it was it was a, a slightly more extensive than that but not much more. I basically said, you know, feel free to think about one specific area of interest to you, you know, so there are environmental concerns, there are concerns about a reproductive choice, there are concerns about immigration obviously. Um and it, so some some folks sort of took it as I'm going to think about what will happen to um America if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And um Eden Lepecki's story is a good example of that. It's about a group of young women who um um, sort of take it upon themselves to provide abortion services. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, 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 Lauren Bueckes, who's a, uh, a wonderful kind of speculative novelist, she writes horror and mystery stuff. And she created this, which we haven't run yet, but we will shortly, this kind of uh, what she calls the Patriot Points or reward program, where you're filling out a questionnaire <laughs> to see if you are truly an American and truly fit in the new America. So that's a sort of work of high satire. And then Amnesi Shaw's story, you know, she imagined the resistance and she sort of thought through a kind of communitarian um, political organ- underground organization, um, which to me is, an, is one of the most sort of hopeful and exciting stories. Um, it's called The Slipper Net. We haven't run it yet, but we will shortly um, about like what what is it going to look like uh, over the next few years? Because we're in this very exciting political moment right now, people trying to figure out what part they want to play in pushing back against this new world.
1: One thing that's been striking about reading these in the context of the first not quite month of the Trump administration um, is how uh, swiftly the real <laughs> world became extreme and apocalyptic. Like, you know, I, I I think when I look back on what some of my concerns were about the Trump administration coming in, um, they were around the impact that Trump's uh, you know, Trump's appointees and his administration broadly would have on all the groups of people that he maligned and threatened on the way into office. Um, But I think I also uh, was not anticipating how uh, broadly and loudly and quickly uh, the administration would do things like threaten green card holders with the inability to travel or return to their families the level of egregiousness of the early assaults on rights from the Trump administration has actually catapulted the sense of what the country feels like now into realms that feel apocalyptic and practically fictional and i think that yeah. extremity of action has really spurred an extreme response but it's it's been interesting to note too how how these stories pick different moments some relatively um Soon in the future, yeah. some further in the future, uh, to to look back and and yeah. the the pieces are really illuminating.
5: Yeah, it's 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 fascinating, isn't it? It's, you you don't realize how quickly things can change, not just sort of in terms of the political realm, but in the way the world feels. And like I mean, I published my novel Underground Airlines last year, you know, mid last year, and it's about it's about the the legacy of slavery and how America is still so screwed up around its treatment of, um, its African American citizens and how the, you know, things like the right to vote are, um, you know, and, and just it, the right of freedom of movement and, and to be free from police violence are still so fragile. And like, it's gotten worse. Suddenly we have Jeff Sessions as the attorney general, someone who's spent a lifetime campaigning against the right to vote. Um, and like, it, it's like, we don't realize how I guess we didn't realize um, or we didn't want to realize how fragile the 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 sort of membrane is between the things we take for granted the world that we take for granted and something that is much much worse um and and so like even in the time between my calling for these stories and and folks starting to write them and the time now that we are publishing them which was like a two-month you know or a six-week window things have changed so dramatically that i've gotten emails from people like wait my story didn't run yet can i update you know can i change this can i make it you know <laughs> it
2: wasn't it wasn't dystopic enough right well, exactly. i got to up the dystopianism I mean, a bit
5: <laughs> and like and events on the ground are moving so rapidly it's it's astonishing um, it's astonishing you know hector tobar's story was the first one we ran it was about it was in the week of the inauguration and it was about um, it's called the daylight underground and it's about uh, the mass deportation of um of undocumented, uh, uh, immigrants to the United States. And it was very shortly after that, that we had the first of the EOs, uh, the executive orders dealing with, well, let's start to clean this up. Let's start to get these folks out of here. Let's start to prevent folks from coming in. And like our worst dystopian imaginings are, are, um, suddenly being fulfilled, you know, or, or at least they're, they're, they're making their every effort to fulfill them. And we are seeing people resist.
0: Well, Ben, I sincerely hope that um, you don't have to update your story because reality has overtaken it. Um, let me just quote my, the sentence that really grabbed me. My execution is in 10 minutes and the crowd is getting excited. Why don't you talk a little bit about your contribution to the project?
5: Thank you. Um, I uh, Yeah, so my story is called Fifth Avenue and I sort of took as the pivot point for mine the, uh, the time when Trump early on in his campaign announced in a speech that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any votes. So fervent was his uh, base of support. Um, and so I, I set my piece during the the re-election campaign, and I um, the hero of my story is a journalist who is in a cage waiting to be shot by the president on Fifth Avenue um, as a as a, basically as a big campaign stunt because he is now threatened by the insurgent uh, James Mattis campaign. And so I think mine actually is one of the most um, sort of tr- traditional. If you can say that the the alternate history genre. Uh, is has its traditions. Mine is in that tradition where I've really imagined out or tried to map out what some of the political events will be between now in 2017 and then in 2020. And I give a kind of capsule summary of um, American politics between now and then as it has impacted the life of this journalist who put himself on the emoluments beat. And he's been looking up, you know, he's been following stories about political corruption. And now it has come to this.
1: Reading the Eden Lepucky story, Chorus, which is, a, a, imagine, sort of a world of underground abortion providers, actually in the Pence presidency, it assumes that Trump's been ousted, but the that the Pence presidency that has been ushered in is uh, not so great for women either. And... Um, in it, the women, the anonymous women who get abortions are referred to as Martha. They're all called Martha. And I believe that in Handmaid's Tale, one of the kind of archetypal female figures, like the women who are not designed for marriage or reproduction, but I think just for housework, are called the Marthas. So I liked the reappropriation of the Marthas in that story,
5: yes. yeah, and you're I think you're exactly right. They're like the household servant characters in um in Handmaid's Tale. And I think that, and, and Eden is a wonderful writer, and I think that story is very powerful, and I think it is very much evoking Handmaid's Tale. And I think that, like, we are playing with a literary tradition here. Um, books like The Handmaid's Tale, obviously, like Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, um, Philip K. Dix, uh, you know, The Man in the High Castle, um, there, there are these wonderful novels that ask us to imagine a world that is different enough from our world, um, to be uh, uh, kind of to hold its own fascination, but similar enough to kind of scare us, to terrify us and to make us think about um, what's going on. Um, Another one that got actually got a lot of, it's got some, some interest during the campaign, besides the plot against America, and then there's the Sinclair Lewis, um, it, it happened here, um, and Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Talents, people were tweeting about it um, over the summer because she has a, a character in that book who is a kind of um, evangelical politician who raves about making America great again. Um, so the kind of prescience of authors in imagining out um, various dystopian scenarios um, had America or or if America should go a different way um, was definitely part of what what inspired this this idea? You know, this this set of stories.
0: Ah, well, now prescience and actual dystopia run uh, side by side and parallel to one another. It's absolutely terrifying. It's, it's very riveting.
1: Um, I will also say, while we have been here, that I am certain I've endorsed Ben's book on our show, Underground Airlines, is a it's an amazing read and a really provocative um, set of ideas about how bad things would be if slavery had not ended and also how similar that bad outcome is to some aspects of our world in 2016 and even more so in 2017. Um, So if you have not read it, and I know listeners to Slate Podcast were browbeaten by um, other podcasts as well um, to read this book, it's time. You should read it.
0: Uh, Ben Winters, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about uh, the Trump Story Project. Thank you so much. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have?
2: Well, my endorsement this week springs... Like Athena from the head of Zeus from my endorsements last week. If you remember, I endorsed uh, two Twitter feeds. One was the feed of Rithi Pan, who's a Cambodian filmmaker, and the other was that of Rabbi Amaladin, who's a novelist and, and essayist. And as it happens, this week in The New Yorker, Rabbi Amaladin, the second of those two recommendations, has a piece on on Trump and the era of Trump that is really in a moment when we're inundated with all kinds of, you know, written thoughts about this crazy new thing that's happening to our country, is one of the best things that I've read so so far about uh, about trump and trumpism it's called our part in the darkness and it appears in the february 5th issue of the new
1: yorker it's by rabbi Oh, that
0: sounds fantastic um, julia what do you have
1: i have a prince related endorsement because why not have a prince related endorsement any week that you can uh, there are two occasions for having a prince endorsement this week not that one needs an occasion uh, but he was honored on the grammys on sunday night and also on Grammy Sunday, his songs re- returned to streaming services like Spotify. They had uh, come down, I think, a couple years ago. Um, but a couple years before that, Prince guest starred on an episode of The New Girl. And uh, in that show, in that episode, uh, one of the settings was a party at Prince's house. And Prince created a playlist for what would be played at that party, because he did not want the show to misrepresent what kind of musical vibes would be happening at his party. So while you are checking out uh, Prince's catalog on streaming services, you should also mosey over to uh, the many, many playlists on Spotify that are called something like Prince's new girls party playlist, Prince's party playlist, new girls, Twitter personality and tech guy Anil Dash was one of the people who uh, saw the list, which I think was originally published in New York and turned it into a Spotify playlist. So we'll post one of those on um, our show page. But check out Prince's party playlist along with his songs. He, as you will not be surprised to learn, was a pretty great DJ. Uh,
0: That sounds that sounds truly incredible. Um, can you give us a couple of song titles from it?
1: Curtis Mayfield, "Wild and Free," um, Soul Children, "Don't Take My Sunshine." It just—it's like a good, a, it's just a good mix of stuff. People you want to hear from, but not necessarily the thing you would have thought to put on yourself.
0: All right, I'm going to go full obscurantist in uh, honor of our forthcoming slap plus section, but. Um, I wanted to um, uh, endorse a a book by a philosopher whose work I've mentioned before. uh, The philosopher is Christine Korsgaard. She's uh, not only alive, she's doing her best and great work right now. She teaches at Harvard, professor at Harvard. Her book is called Self-Constitution, Agency, Identity, and Integrity. This may seem obscure. It shouldn't. Um, She's a neo-Kantian. She's reviving Kant for the modern age in ways that to me are completely and utterly relevant to our lives. She says something along the lines of, this is not a quote, these are from my own notes on her work on the book, but it's only um, in considering our actions in the light of reason that uh, our lives become fully chosen things and that we become authors of ourselves. Any, uh, anyway, uh, to which I would just add that, that to the extent that philosophy is just an attempt to come up with a def- working definition of what it is to be a human being, which nobody can do, um successfully which is why we need more and more philosophy um she's come up with one that i think revives a notion of reason giving of being accountable to other human beings in the common and public space of reason that that uh, her idea essentially is that when you provide a reason for an act you tie both your conception of yourself as an agent and your conception of life to what it is you do in the world and in so doing an act becomes something more than just a mere act like anyone can move a rock or you know Uh, or throw a baseball or whatever an act becomes an action and that something is authored by you and you become a self-author or a full being in the world it's it's i I there are a number of ways to get at why this is moving but one of which to me is that it competes directly with um a very uh economics-based notion of the human being as a as a self-maximizer um that that You know, over the last 20 or 30 years, the really dominant mode of thinking of ourselves as human has been neo-Darwinian, right? We're survival machines, we're uh, DNA transmitting machines, almost zombie-like in the telling of Richard Dawkins. Or, um, you know, according to uh, Austrian economists and Chicago economists, we're just attempting to rationally self-maximize. And all of what counts as reason is subsumed under that definition. And the best working definition of being human that competes directly with that, in fact, negates it, is uh, course guards. And she actually talks about that, why that can't possibly be what we mean when we say that we're reasoning beings in the world, has much more to do with creating a self that is accountable to others in a perspicuous way. That's what reason giving is. And if you're, if you're not doing that, in a lovely phrase, she says, you're what Aristotle called a mere heap. And now that we appear to be ruled by people who are mere heaps, coming up with a notion of what it is to be a responsible, self-authored human being seems to me quite a moving and quite a relevant project. So anyway, her name is Christina Korsgaard, professor at Harvard. And the title of the book is Self-Constitution, Agency, Identity, and Integrity, uh, one of the best books I've read in a decade. All right. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network, and you can check out an entire roster of really quite amazing shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you soon. What is wrong. Across the world as
3: well as home Respect for everybody's right Could be really out of sight